The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with Wings Over New Zealand, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from the latest news to historic happenings around New Zealand and the world. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird restorers, warbird owners, historians, modelers, authors, photographers, and many, many others. Sign up to Wings Over New Zealand now. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great supporters had from Fly DC-3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport. Charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and once again we're here with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hi Dave. How's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. Well um, in this episode we're going to get back into your... uh, your aircraft depot, number three aircraft depot, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, with, uh, but this time with the Canberra the test Tefton flying. Ferry. Yeah, yeah, this was interesting. I think as I recall we said last time, uh, Jim Rollins came down to the uh, to the office and said to the Canberra guys that they were being posted back to the bomber wing to be instructors. Yeah. And I looked at him and said, or looked at his back actually, and said, well, who's going to do the test flying? And he spun around and said, you've got a week to get checked out, Noel. Oh my God, what? <laughs> <laughs> It just so happened that uh, Jeff and Brian had just finished test flying a two-seat trainer. There was only about half a dozen of them on the base. Yep. Uh, they were operated by the conversion unit, and they just finished test flight on one. So there it was. And Jim had already told the, the bomber wing they weren't getting it back for another couple of weeks. Right. He had a use for it. Right. He'd set this whole thing up. And I could see the smirk on his face when he said, you've got a week to check out. And <laughs> it must have been because of the look on my face, like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so Jeff and Brian's job were to check me out on how to fly a Canberra and then how to test fly it. Now, I must explain at this stage, we had three different models of Canberras. We had the Trainer and the Mark I, which were basically the same airframe, but the Trainer had two ejection seats squeezed in where only one would really fit. Again, straight away, as soon as I got into it, I thought, oh no, the vampire again. (laughs) You know, you you were elbowed in so close to each other in this this training airplane, squeezed in. And then there was the Mark I bomber, which had the seat a little bit more towards, a little more elbow room. The seat wasn't quite as squanched over as much. And it was only a single seat with room for the navigator to crawl back past you and be the bomber. Because the navigator was also the bombardier. He had to unstrap from his ejection seat, crawl forward, and lay down his belly in the nose and drop the bombs. And then go back and get into his ejection seat. So if anything happened, of course, when he was done, not strapped in, the poor bugger was was meat. Yeah. Yeah, it was a crazy design. Anyway, that's by the by. And then they had what they called them, and these, 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 both of these marks had the small Avon engine. It was 5,700 pounds of thrust each side, okay? Yeah. And then they had, I think it was, this was an Australian improvement because they made these things locally down at Fisherman's Bend also. Then they had the Mark 109, they called it. I think that was because of the, the engine mark number. It had two Sabre engines in it. Was seven and a half thousand pounds thrust. We're talking about almost a fifty percent increase in thrust oh. on that same airframe. Okay. And man, were they a hot ship, right? Now I'd not flown one of these in the early stage, obviously. Yeah. It was interesting when I did. Yeah. Um, so you had the Mark Ones, the Mark One Hundred Nines, 
the 109s were the ones being used up north in, in Vietnam, of course, because they could carry a heavier bomb load. They had tip tanks, and you know, they were the really serious operational heavy lift airplane. Yeah. The Mark I bombers were used locally for training purposes, as were the two-seaters, I suppose. I don't know what the, the split of numbers were, but I think most of them are 109s. Anyway, so I started this conversion. So I was sort of handed the flight manual and <laughs> told to go home and read it, and we'll start in the morning. And it was about six inches thick with all sorts of garbage. <laughs> and of course, systems out there, Gazoo, you know, the Sabre had a, a, a few systems. This had lots of, it was a manual control. It wasn't hydraulic, but there were a lot of good old British things. And it was, simply put, it was like a big vampire yeah. with the same ergonomic dysfunctional cockpit layout with things all over the place. And when you get in this two-seater, um, it was just scrunched. But having said that, it handled really well. Okay. It handled really well. And again, I come back to something that Jim Rowland said to me about this time. In fact, it probably came as a result uh, of this experience I was having. And it stuck with me ever since. And I've repeated this hundreds of times to people when I'm talking about you know, how cramped and awkward they are. And he said to me, he said, Noel, you have to understand one thing. He said, the British build very good airplanes. Then they say, where will we squeeze the pilot in? <laughs> Whereas the Americans say, let's take this lounge chair <laughs> and build an airplane around. <laughs> and I, I have repeated that phrase so many times because that was typical of British aeroplanes. Yeah. So yes, it handled quite nicely. It, you know, it, in terms of speeds and, and roll rates or anything, it felt just like a big vampire. So I felt immediately comfortable flying the aeroplane. Yep. But it had two engines. I'd never flown a twin-engine airplane before in my life, and now suddenly I'm flying this twin jet, which had, shall we say, idiosyncrasies. You may recall, I explained to you in the, in the case of the Sabre, you didn't do touch and goes, because once you closed the throttle, the engine took a while to spool up uh, to about 50% power before it then let go and gave you the, all the thrust you wanted. Yep. And sometimes it wouldn't spool up or it would hang up. Well, now you had two of them who might do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you had to make sure that you did an approach to land with these engines, both up past this, what they call the acceleration control unit let, you know, range and all. And so you have to offset this with large amounts of flap. Now again, like the Vampire, the good British design, it had either 20 degrees of flap or full flap, which was 80 degrees, barn doors. And it had these speed brakes, which used to pop out, the fingers would spot, pop out more like spoilers out of the top of the wing. So you had a lot of drag there. And it had these engines which were slow to spool up. So when it came to asymmetric training, um, we, by the time I, and I knew all about this because it was fairly topical at the time. In fact, a guy who used to work for me in my flying school years later was one of the navigators who should have been on one of the ones that crashed, but he swapped with a mate beforehand. Okay. And they had two training accidents doing simulated asymmetrics where um, you had one engine running a high power to fly the airplane and the other one throttled back below its acceleration control range and then you had to go around and if in the early days of training you had to bring the the so-called failed engine back up and accelerate it uh, well in advance of going around so you get sure you had the power and then you bring it on again so it's like a two-stage go-around process well apparently in two occasions they had a situation where the acceleration control unit on the so-called dead engine which they're bringing back online hung up all right, all right. But by now the ground's getting close, so they had to go. So they've actually backed off on the other engine just enough to sort of maintain control as they raised the nose and slowed down. Yeah. And apparently the, then, without realising it, the, the bad engine which had hung up then unhung, and all the controls are the wrong way around. Oh, wow. I can't remember exactly how it worked now, but both of them 
half flick rolls into the ground and killed the, the crews. Yeah. So of course I'd heard all about this, so when I got to check out with, with Jeff, um, we talked about this a lot because the, 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 the airplane had a 168 knot VMCA, velocity minimum control of one engine, 168 knots. It would come off the ground at 120 knots. So you had about a 48 knot, 50 knot window where if you lost an engine, you're out of control. Yep. And I thought, that sounds a bit dodgy. And it is. Yep. A modern airplane would never be certified to that. There's no way that any of these twins you see fly, even the lightest of twins, would be certified if you had that sort of situation. Right. Uh, most light twins are able to stay on the ground until they get to what they call blue line and take off. So if they lose an engine at that instant, they can maintain control. They might climb very well, but they at least maintain control. Yep. The Canberra was totally uncontrollable for a 40 knot period after takeoff. Wow. If you if you ever went to Amberley, which had this big long runway, and watched the Canberras take off, they'd thunder down the runway, they'd lift off probably about halfway down, and retract the gear and then descend. <laughs> <laughs> Once the wheels are away, they go back down to a cup and hold the level as f and just accelerate as quick as they damn well could until they got past 168 knots. Then they climb away <laughs> just to get through this this dead man's window. So anyway, I heard all about this, and Jeff had briefed me on it all. So we went up and we decided, well, I want to see this. And he said, oh, yeah, you've got to learn this. So we did all the normal asymmetric stuff, just flying around one engine with all the controls crossed up. And it felt quite awkward. But I thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. And he said, right, now let's try and set this up. And we, it took two or three goes. And he said, right, I'm going to pretend that this one's failed, and then you're going to advance it, and I'm going to hold it back to pretend it's... It's, it's hung up, and I can't remember the exact comment. It was quite complex. Yeah. And the first two times we tried it, and I'm pushing this one and that one, I've got the controls over here. The airplane just wallowed away, and we looked at each other and said, oh, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal, does it? Let's try it one more time. Well, this one more time, we, he got it right. And I'm slowed down to about 140 knots, and I've got full power one engine, and all the controls in the opposite corner of the office, and then this... He brings up... I start bringing up the other engine. He stops it with his hand, so I back off on the good engine, and suddenly he lets the... The bad engine go and we did a half flick roll worthy of my pit special wow whack she flicked straight on her back dropped her nose now fortunately we were at twenty-five thousand feet we were covered at about 10. <laughs> rolled out pulled out slammed both throttles closed of course and, and just to get symmetric somehow because i don't know where the goddamn engines were at this point and just sat there and looked at each other with the mask and the visors like <laughs> we were both as white as a sheep <laughs> And he said, I have never seen it go that bad. I said, yeah, well, <laughs> this will give you something to teach the Sproggs when you were flying structure. <laughs> and from that point on, uh, I must admit, I had tremendous respect for the asymmetric or lack of asymmetric capability of the camera. And I thought, if anything is going to kill me, this bloody thing is. Yeah. Anyway, I started my check out. I checked my logbook here on the 18th of March. And on the 26th of March, I did my first solo in the two-seater. All right. okay. And uh, that was the trainer. And then there was a bit of a gap until the 10th of April until we got a, a Mark 1 bomber came out. Jeff still did the, the test flying on this thing because uh, I wasn't quite up to that yet. And then he turned over to me, so I did a couple of solo, uh, sorry, a couple of solo sorties. And, and Brian, who was the navigator, and he was the guy that had all of the test flight schedules and so forth, he was allowed to stay on for another month or so. So whilst I was driving, he could tell me what to do next, you know, yeah. had yeah. the checklists and all. And so with this Mark 1 bomber, I took it on a couple of Navexes around the countryside down to Williamtown just to get the feel of this machine and how it worked. And, and Brian uh, took care of the rest of it. So I was sort of fairly well up to speed by the time he finally moved out. And then there was another bit of a gap. 
Uh, and then uh, I had my last flight on a Mark One, the Mark One bomber. I actually, I think we borrowed it back. I think Jim set this up. He said, "Oh, look," he said, "We've got one coming out of the barn for the full test flight. You should, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since you've flown a, uh, the bomber. I borrowed this one back from the, the bomb wing, so I saw it towed down. So I got in and we took it for a bit of a fly. Yeah. And then that afternoon, they rolled out a 109 bomber out of the hangar. This is the big engine one. Yeah. It had no paint." No bombing gear, no nothing. It was as light as a Canberra could ever possibly be with these two big engines. And that same afternoon, and I'll, I'm just looking at this thing going, uh-oh. <laughs> you could see the engines had the big, much bigger starter bullets and all the rest of it yep. from the thing. And uh, I can remember, it was almost like I'm sitting at the end of the runway with the flight manual open on my lap. Because the cockpit layout was a little bit different. But as soon as you dropped the brakes on this thing, man, it would outclimb a Sabre to 10,000 feet. Wow. Yeah. Then it was limited by Mach numbers and SPs, of course, so the Sabre would go on from there. But yeah, just the power to weight ratio at low level. And it rocketed down the runway. Yee-haw! Whoa! <laughs> and then, of course, when it came to asymmetrics in the 109, wow, it was, it, it was just super vicious. It was. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't like this. And that's the one thing I did not like about the airplane at all. Um, and then, of course, Brian um, also had to go and do his thing. So I said to Jim, well, what about the guy in the back? And he said, well, he said, you're a fighter pilot, so you know how to navigate, so you don't need a navigator, and you're only flying locally anyway. He said, we've got this adjutant down here who's an old Lincoln signaler. He knows how to turn switches on and off, and he can tick the boxes. He's going to be your navigator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this old, old guy, who was in his 40s, I mean, I'm 25 or so at this stage, he comes and introduces himself, and his name is Hanson, nickname Avro. <laughs> I don't remember what his real first name was. He was Avro Hanson. And so he sat down the back and ticked all the boxes and so forth. And therein, of course, is where we had a series of errors because he was totally inexperienced in the Canberra. Yeah. You know, he had to, Brian checked him out on how to strap into the back seat. And, and, and again, we're getting back to this good um, British engineering. There was a series of switches on the far side of the cockpit, halfway between the pilot and the, and the, and the navigator which neither of you could reach if you were strapped in. <laughs> so they had this little stick with this little claw on the end. That was the navigator's sort of arm extension stick. So you pick this up and you'd reach over and you'd flick these knobs on this alternator control panel or something, what it was there. Right? And of course, Avro forgot to take that on one particular flight. <laughs> so we had to come back and pick up his extension stick in a little embarrassing moment like this. <laughs> Anyway, we had to uh, go through this, and it was a fairly extensive um, test flying program because it was manual control, but there were trim tabs on each of the control surfaces, which were electric, and they had the little indicators, and you had to get all the trims set up at varying speeds and all. And so for me, being a total sprog on the airplane, it was a four or five flight program if everything went right. Yeah. And of course, not everything went right as usual. Yeah. And uh, I remember a couple of, of the more interesting ones early in the piece. It was only Mark One this time. The one, the first one on nine, I had actually purchased, fortunately worked well. Didn't give me any problems at all. So I learnt how to be the test pilot on an aer airplane that didn't fight back. Right, right, right. And then we had a Mark One, fortunately. And they used to have to do a thing called an N over root T stall thing. And basically, the, the, that means that. Um, temperature versus um, shock waves down the intake because the difference between the Canberra and the Sabre, apart from many other things, is the fact that the Sabre engine is down the end of a 16 foot long tube. Yep. So the air is always going down slightly compressed and warmed into the front end of the engine straight on. Yep. 
the Canberra's guide vanes, you, you look at a Canberra bomber, they're right up the front. There's only about two inches of lip before there's nothing. Yeah. You had about a two-inch intake. And so, of course, at high altitudes, where you've got low temperatures, high Mach numbers, but low indicated airspeeds, the airplane's flying along at a fairly high angle of attack at these low things yeah. with high power. And so the airflow is coming at the guide vanes that are at the wrong angle and the temperature's wrong, and you can start to get some compressibility effects around the guide vanes, and that would snuff out the engine. Oh, right. Or at least compressor stall it, huh? and yeah. sometimes it would go out completely. Yeah. And the deal was you'd set up the, the airplane in, a, in a, a climb and start to raise the nose and bring the airspeed back. We're up around about 40,000 feet with the airspeed way back and see which engine would let go first. With both throttle, and suddenly, poof, one would let go and the airplane would roll. <laughs> And you're back around VMCA, but it didn't matter at that height. I just used to let the bloody thing roll and drop the nose. It was no big deal. The ground was nowhere near. And, of course, then you'd you'd light it up again, and then you'd do it a couple of times to see if the other one would let go too. This was all good fun, except on this very first run with Avro down the back. Of course, I remember it was a starboard engine. It it failed, and we flipped over. I recovered about 35 and sort of pulled the high-pressure cock as soon as it failed, of course, to stop flooding the the atmosphere with fuel. And... uh, I was environmentally friendly even back then. It also used to flood the, the engine with fuel and maybe start a fire. Got it all stabilised again on one engine, opened the high-pressure cock, hit the hot relight button, which is a knob on top of the of the, the high-pressure cock. And normally you would hear in your earphones, this click, 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 as these igniters would fire on the, straight off the battery. Yeah. Because uh, just it would generate sufficient electrostatic interference that even on the intercom, this airplane had an intercom, so right. we could talk to each other. Hit right. his click, click. So I hit the button and there was no clicking. And of course the engine wasn't starting. Avro, we don't seem to have any igniters. Oh, hang on a minute. Flick, flick, flick. He's flicking through the book. So. <laughs> now a real navigator would know instantly what to do. <laughs> yeah. After about two or three minutes, he gets to the appropriate page and says, oh, okay, um, we've got to check the circuit breaker, which is on the panel underneath his, behind my seat and underneath his little desk. And it's hidden behind a cover plate with Zuz fasteners. <laughs> And for that, you need special Zuzfaster opening tool number XYZ. Do you have one? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a pop circuit breaker, but we can't get at it. So that was my first asymmetric arrival in a Canberra. And at this stage, I had all of about, I don't know, 10 hours on the things. Of course, Jim was there to welcome us. <laughs> what happened? <clears throat> and this, this time, I said, talk to him. <laughs> your, your bloody adjutant, boss. <laughs> The next time we flew, he brought an entire toolkit with him. <laughs> he, had, he had enough to disassemble the cockpit. He was not going to get... He had several sticks and wands and things and spanners. <laughs> anyway, so that was my first asymmetric landing in a jet ever. And it, it kind of worked. Um, <laughs> but the other thing I used to enjoy about uh, flying the Canberra, uh, which most of the bomber pilots couldn't do, because by the time they... We finally sent them to the bomber wing. They fitted the bombsite gear, which was all gyros and things, and a, and a Doppler system called Green Saturn, which was one of those wonderful British code names. Yeah. Uh, navigator Doppler. None of that was fitted to the, initially. All that avionics were left out while we did the airframe and engine testing. Then they put it in. Right. So in those early days, the airplane was fully aerobatic. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I used to test my barrel rolls by asking Navarro to write down, I give him a whole bunch of numbers to write down, so I imagine his head is down, big, smooth, he had a little porthole, about eight inches diameter porthole, it's all you had to see, the outside world, horrible situation for him, I'd do this big barrel roll, and then say, look out the window, and I could tell by his expressions to how smooth my barrel roll, I go, oh, bugger, because <laughs> he'd look out and see the ground and the sky, <laughs> yeah. after a while he got used to this, and I know what you're doing, <laughs> 
But I, I did barrel rolls and, and, and the old loop and so forth. And it was, again, it was just like a big vampire. Okay. Um, and I'd not seen a Canberra do that till the very, skipping way, way ahead, one of the very last, well, sorry, at a, an air show at Richmond, just before they phased them out. Yeah. Um, a young man named Adrian Sluge, strange name, put on this immaculate aerobatic display in the camera. For its farewell performance, they ripped all the stuff out and let him go for it. And he's doing inverted pass. And people just didn't realise what this aeroplane was capable of yeah. once you took all the stuff out. And yeah, he did a brilliant job. And of course, the history of the Canberra, you read about when the hands of Roland Beaumont, he used to wear about it all over the sky when they first built the things. Okay. At Farnborough, and that blew the Yanks away. Here was his bomber, which would outperform all of their bombers and also outperform most of their fighters. <laughs> That's why the Martin Company ordered 400 of them on the spot. Yeah. It's called the B 57. Yeah. yeah. And of course, what Martin Company did is immediately rip out the pommy cockpit and put a decent fighter dual tandem bubble canopy on it, which was cool. I would love to have flown one of those. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, so the asymmetric part of it was the thing which was really going to dog me because there was another thing where we actually had to do a VMCA check to make sure that the numbers were correct. Yeah. And for some strange reason, they designed the, the control surfaces with sort of torque tubes between the, especially the rudder, between the rudder cable and the all the rudder push rods and the actual bell crank down the back, there was a torque tube which connected to the rudder. So you could actually get more rudder authority if you didn't trim the rudders than if you did trim the rudders. Okay. I, I can't remember exactly the reason for this, but even then I thought this is crazy. And so you have to do this VMCA check and not trim it out, which means you're shoving on the front, you're getting a knee tremble trying to hold a huge pressure on this rudder, and all this had to be done at below level. The deal was it had to be done at 1,000 feet with the gear and the flap full down, 80 degrees of flap, full power on one engine and then raise the nose until it started to roll and control and then fly away. Huh? And, and then fly away? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I read this in detail. I thought, God, so I tried a few times. There's no way you can do it at 1,000 feet. You have to go down to 500 feet and set it up and get it slowed right down and then pull the nose up and decelerate because there's no way it would slow down on one engine once you're airborne. Right. Uh, so here I'm doing these sort of mini zoom climbs up through a thousand to fifteen hundred feet, slowing down deliberately so as the speed dropped back through 160-80 knots or whatever, as it started to roll, I'd call the number, close the throttle, roll it out, bring up the other engine, raise the gear, raise the flap, and pull out at about treetop height, and then do it on the other engine. And I've done this on a couple of aeroplanes, so I'm thinking, this is bloody dangerous. This is crazy. But that's what the test flight schedule said, you know, so I'm doing it because I'm completely naive about these things. Yep. And it wasn't until a month or more into flying these things that I, I was at the bar one night and I spoke to a guy named Ivan Grove, who was the chief flying instructor from the bomber wing. And I happened to casually say that, oh, those VMCA checks are bloody dodgy down there at top feet. And his face went white. He said, you're not doing those, are you? I said, yes, but the test flight schedule says. He said, we threw them out years ago. <laughs> Really? Haven't you got the amendment? <laughs> so I went straight back the next morning. I saw Jim Rollins and said, I think we're missing a few amendments from our test flight schedule. Oh, let me look, he says. Oh, yeah. Are you doing that? Yeah. I, I suggest you stop doing that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Never was I so glad to stop doing this because you know, it was verging on uncontrollable at low level. So I just stopped doing it. Yeah. So again, my respect for this, this uh, or disrespect for this asymmetric of this airplane was still haunting me. And <laughs> then I had probably the, 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 the most, uh, what can I have, the biggest screw up 
of the lot. Okay. I gave myself a double engine failure. Double engine failure? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jim was really there to meet me on this one. Uh, how you had to do a thing called a trim. So I mentioned all the little uh, trim indicators. Yep. And what you had to do is set the airplane up at 150 knots, but with two engines. So, okay, we'll do that and, and, and trim it out and then note the position of these indicators and call it out and he'd write them down. And then you go to 200 knots and do the same thing. And then 250 and then 300 and then 350 and then 400, right? which is about as fast as the airplane would go, maybe a fraction faster. Right? Yep. Now, the thing is, you couldn't let the center of gravity move while doing this, otherwise it would destroy it. Now, the Canberra bomber had one, two, three, four, five, five tanks internally, or was it seven? I think it was two in each, seven. There was two in each wing and there were three in the fuselage and that wasn't counting tip tanks, which we didn't test for. And when you sat in the cockpit, the left-hand side of the panel, the left-hand side of the instrument panel on the pilot side was all the normal gauges, the airspeeds and all that sort of stuff. Yep. On the right-hand side was this humongous fuel panel with switches and low pressure cocks and booster pumps and pressure gauges for each tank, each engine and each tank. Yep. Okay. And it was just a dog's breakfast of switches everywhere. And you sit there going, oh, eeny, meeny, miny. <laughs> but the deal was you had to have a 1,500 pound differential between the front fuselage tank and the rear fuselage tank and maintain it. So you ran on the center tank, which was right over the wing roots uh, in the center of gravity. Yeah. And it only contained 2,000 pounds of fuel. And we're going up to 400 knots on two thirsty Avon jet engines, especially yeah. the 109s, which would burn each upwards of three and a half thousand pounds per hour. Just giving the mathematics. Yeah. So I got the, we, you did something else, whatever the other test flight, until you got your 1,500 pound differential. So right, now we're going to do the trim run. So you drop it down to about a thousand feet. And this is way up west of, of Ambly, um, out west of uh, fake country there. And you slow it down and you start. And you accelerate, accelerate, call out, accelerate, call out. And this particular airplane was a bit tricky, getting the trim right, the, the trim was a bit strange. Hmm? It was a 109, so it's a big engine, so it's really sucking the fuel. Yeah. And I completely forget to keep an eye on my center fuselage tank. So about the time we're barreling on at 400 knots, <laughs> both engines, gone. And all these red lights come on. <laughs> and I, won't, I won't tell you what I thought or said at that moment, but instinctively both hands, both fingers went out to the hot relight buttons with my left hand. My right hand turned on every fuel booster pump and every other fuel tank that I could reach. I'm just flicking switches on furiously as I can. Abra down the back, having realized we've lost both engines, is saying, should I eject, should I eject? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not quite sure which hand was flying the airplane because I had both fingers pushing the hot relight buttons through the like, top of the sticks there. And I turned every fuel tank and every booster pump on I could. One engine caught, fortunately and spooled up again. Yeah. But the other one said, no, don't want to know you. So we came home and did another asymmetric landing. And Jim was there to meet us, because of course you have to declare your asymmetric when you, you come into the circuit. Yeah. Because with, with a Canberra bomber, if you have to go around, you have to make your decision before 600 feet above the airfield. Okay. Because it took that long to spool the engine, even the, the, the good engine, to spool it up, get your gear and flap up whilst continuing to descend and accelerating beyond 168 knots, because your, your touchdown speed is back at 110. Right. Right. So your final approach speed is 125, 130 knots, 30 knots below. So you don't just slam on the power and pull the nose up or you die. Okay. Right. So the man in the tower had to know that you were really asymmetric and to, to get everyone out of the way. 
So of course I had to declare this every time and so Jim got the word every time so he's down there and this time he sort of looked at me and said, what happened? And I said, well, this was the doozy boss, you know, really screwed at this time. <laughs> and all he said at the end of it is he said, hmm, better keep an eye on the fuel gauge next time, eh? <laughs> I don't know what he thought of me. I thought, who is this kid that's flying these aeroplanes? <laughs> anyway... So we had, uh, so the camber itself actually went pretty well. Um, it had this thing I never used before called an ILS system. Right? I'd done GCAs and I say, but never I knew how it worked. Yeah. And of course, I had to check out that it worked. But we didn't do it IFR in case it didn't work. So I would go across to Eagle Farm, um, which is um, Brisbane's International Airport, which had an ILS system, and fly the approach visually. Now I had the chart there, so I'd set it all up and then went uh, lined up on the right. So I'd fly the approach visually and look at the needles and see that they stayed somewhere around where I reckon they should, which they always did. It was a pretty good system. Yeah. But I've never actually flown one for real. And of course, then we tick that box, say, yeah, the ILS works fine, and away we go. And it was sometime later, of course, during all of this period of flying cameras, I also flying the Sabre. Yes. There was nothing that I was flew a Sabre in the morning, a camera in the afternoon, or vice versa. Yeah. You know? um, so it suddenly got very hectic, and I'm on this very steep learning curve with this camera. Um, the Sabre became almost automatic at this point. I still had those little malfunctions, but they were sort of, oh, yeah, well, I can handle that. But in the camera, it was, oh, my God, what happened? What do I do? Sort of yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember this one particular occasion getting fairly late in my, my time there. Um, Jim Rollins, being a group captain, had gone to Canberra for some conference, and he decided he wanted to lift home for his personal pilot to come and get him. <laughs> I'm down at Williamtown. I've... I've, I've delivered a, a Sabre to Williamtown and I'm bumming around the various squadrons talking to people and next thing I get a phone call. The, the switchboard had been trying to track me down and it's from Ambly, from Avro, saying, get your ass back here now because the boss wants you to go down to Canberra City and pick him up and bring him home. Right. Oh, okay. So I scurried back down to the, the, the maintenance depot and found my Sabre and got in it. Fortunately, it worked fine and flew it to Ambly. As I'm taxiing in the Sabre, there's the 109 bomber sitting there waiting for me with this guy standing next to it that I'd never seen before. A real navigator. Oh, right. A real live navigator. <laughs> never met him before. And he'd done all the flight planning and everything, right? We're going to Canberra. So I sort of leapt out of the Sabre, did a quick change of headsets and things and said, G'day, my name's Noel, and I don't remember his name. <laughs> and we climbed on board, and so uh, I started doing And he started reading a checklist. Don't worry about that, because you know, I'm being a fighter pilot, I just did my thing. Yeah. So I did my thing, and then he insisted on reading it anyway. So he read it out, and I'm saying, yeah, done that, done that, done that, done that. Fired it up, taxied out. Uh, by the stage, he told me, well, I've, I've got all the, all the navigation stuff back here. You just go where I point. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Okay. So it took off, and he's making all the radio calls, and he's saying, steer this heading and climb to this height. And he's talking with the air traffic controller, and he was very polite to the air traffic controller. And I thought, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> So we, 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 we tumbled up to, I don't know, 30,000 feet or so, and we're halfway down to Canberra City. And I said to him, what's the weather like down in Canberra? He said, oh, it's shitty, really shitty. We're going to have to do an ILS approach. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind passing the charts to me? So I reached around, and I'm looking at this chart for Canberra, which is a, one of the, shall we say, more challenging ILS approaches, because you come down a valley. Okay. It's a Church Creek locator, you do the procedure turn, don't hit the mountains and down here and all this. I thought, okay, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. I've never done one before. <laughs> this, this guy in the back has no idea, you know, where I come from. He's, he's grabbed him from the bomber wing, 
you know, probably some young pilot officer or flying officer navigator. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we let on down to about 20-odd thousand feet uh, in the cloud overhead and did all, all the things according to the chart. I followed the chart and uh, sat up on the ILS. And of course, having never done one before, I'm thinking, right, now, how do I play this? You know, because I've done lots of GCA. So I started talking to myself like a GCA controller. Yeah, turn left a bit, reduce right to climb a bit. I'm a and he's saying, what are you saying? What are you saying? Shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Yeah. A little bit left to center line, turn right two degrees, you know, reduce rate of descent, and I'm mumbling away. So I'm giving myself a GCA based upon the data, and so that seemed to work. But as you're getting, as people who fly now, as you're getting closer and closer, the needles start to move and move more. And I'm starting to really start to get a bit wobbly down the bottom here, and boom, we break out of cloud at about 700 feet above the airfield. Oh, thank God. Land the airplane. Taxi in. Now it's a bomber. But even the bomber has a dicky seat on the door with a set of jackpots. The door, sort of being a cylindrical fuselage, the door opens down and sideways. So there was Jim. He'd been waiting for about an hour or so. And he sort of, the first thing he said is, you're late. <laughs> <laughs> so he clambered on board, and then you close the hatch and lock it, and then you fold this dicky seat down from the door and sit on that. So you're actually sitting on the door. So if you don't latch the door properly, you're out of here. <laughs> So he's sitting on this dicky cylinder door with this little lap strap harness, which is totally useless, and he plugs his headset in. And we're taxiing back out, to, and the, the navigator's getting his clearances and so forth, and there's this quiet time on the radio. And he said, uh, how was the approach, Noel? I said, oh, it wasn't too bad. He said, yeah, from where I saw you, you seem to come out the right place. Not bad for a first go. And I hear from the back, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he, Jim, you can see the grin behind his little mark. He turned said, yeah, it's the first time we've let him out of the, of the Amberley circuit, one of these, and it's his first ILS. <laughs> <laughs> this guy did not talk to us for the rest of the flight. He made his radio calls, and he sat there. And I can imagine him sitting there with his arms folded, going, mum, mum, <laughs> We got to the other end, we got out, and he just walked away. I've never seen him since. He was so pissed. Wow. That someone had given him to this. this I've never done an ILS before in my life. <laughs> And he, he was, I'm sure he went back and punched someone back in the bottle. He'd been really sad. And Jim thought this was just a hell of a joke. He said, oh, I knew you could do it. And that's when I got the first inkling that maybe he thought I wasn't such a screw-up after all. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by then, he and I are getting on really well. Even though he outranked me by several levels, we actually had this really great relationship. We're always talking about airplanes. And as the odd occasion, he'd just come down and say, let's go for a fly. Now, theoretically, he was no longer... Pilot category, being engineer, but he just won't ever fly. Yeah. So whenever we had a two-seater, or could grab a two-seater, he'd fly it, and I'd sit there, right. and he flew it beautifully. I mean, smooth as silk. I remember just sitting there and, uh, one day doing some 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 flying, and came back and landed, and I said, "You don't need me here." He said, "Oh, lad," he said, "It's good to have you along." I said, "But you fly it so beautifully." He said, "Yeah." He said, "After a while, you just get to know this thing called the aeroplane," and he did because he'd flown so many different types and test flown them all, and he really was a superb pilot. It was an honour to fly with him. And uh, getting towards, I mean, by now I'm, I've, I've got this huge total of about 50 or 55 or 60 hours on Canberra's. Uh, I've done more asymmetric landings than the average bomber pilot does in a lifetime, <laughs> mostly caused by me. <laughs> <laughs> or Avro not bringing the right tools along. And then... What can I say? Fate. I don't believe in fate, but a combination of, of errors which mitigate in your favour. Getting very low. I had this 109 bomber on its first flight. And uh, 
the normal deal is being a twin engine airplane with all the gizmos, you spend about 20 minutes on the ground spooling up the engines and noting temperatures and pressures and all sorts of things before you actually take off. Yeah. All right. And so I cra- we, we did about half an hour by the time, time you get in and tick boxes and taxi up. So we're sitting in what's called the operational readiness pad, which is like the run-up bay on the edge of the runway there. Yeah. I'm sitting there, spooling up the engines, calling out temperatures and pressures, and Avro's writing them down in his bit of paper. And I felt the brakes slip just a little bit. So I instinctively pull the throttles closed and look out the front because I've got head down inside to see if I'm going to run into anything. But there's nothing there, so I'm not going to, but it's just one of the instinctive things. Yeah. As I slam the throttles closed, one of the engines compressor stall. <coughs> so I look back inside and they're both sitting there idling at 3,000 revs. I thought, which one of you buggers did that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not supposed to do I thought, oh, I was just a bit coarse on the throttle handling here. No problem. So uh, we ran them up again, got them right to full power, he's ticking all things. Yep, right, ready to go. Got the clearance, rolled out, got to the end of the runway. And I'm spooling up the engines before letting the brakes go. When this little direct vision window, if you look at the camera more, it's got this big blister and it's got this tiny little porthole. Right? This is called a direct vision window. When all else fails, if it completely ices up like that Sabre did, yep. right? This has an electric element inside it, which stops it. So you can peer through this porthole and hopefully see the land, which would be a bit dodgy, quite frankly, because it's only about four inches diameter. And it's made of this solid, really heavy glass with this electric element inside, you could see it. And this has a thermostat, obviously, to keep the right temperature. And I am like within about one second from dropping the brakes and going for it when this little DV window exploded. Red hot shards, I won't say shards, but little granules of glass went everywhere, all over me. And they were red hot because the thermostat, as it turned out, had been wired incorrectly and just ran away to full hot. Burnt straight through my May West, through my flight. I had cigarette burns on my body. Wow. Three or four places where it just burnt straight through. So, of course, I ripped the throttles closed again and boom, there's a compressor stall. And I don't care because I'm beating these things. Oh, 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 oh. And I've rose down the back saying, What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Ah. And after about five minutes, of course, I'm, I'm suffering all these burns. I've got this jagged hole in the thing. And I've got a compressor which is stored, I don't know which one, I thought, oh, bugger that. Time to, time to call this one quits and go back in. So we taxied back in meekly. You know, I was really stinging at this stage. Yeah. Anyway, uh, part of the deal when you shut down the camera, you pull the high-pressure coxswain, there's a troop, st- and you pull the high-pressure coxswain, and you start your little uh, stop clock, and it's a troop stands next engine. And they, uh, when the engine finally spools down, they hear it going click, 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 I pat the side, and you just note the time. And it should be more than about 100 seconds to run down, just check the bearings and things, right? Pulled the high-pressure cock on the starboard engine. 100 seconds, fine. Pulled the high-pressure cock on the port engine. <clears throat> clunk, 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 clunk. Bang. About 10 seconds, it stopped, and the guy sort of stepped back, and I went, whoa, <laughs> something seriously wrong here. So sure enough, this engine's got a major problem. So being an aircraft depot, they had all the facilities, so over the next couple of days, they pulled the engine out. Of course, by now, the little LAC who's rewired this thing is about to be charged by the warrant officer for dereliction of duty and all the rest of it, and, and he's shaking in his boots. And I've got cigarette burn marks and sticky plates all over me. <laughs> anyway, they pull the, uh, the engine out, and they pull it apart. And I remember going out looking at this thing, and here's these 10-stage compressors, and at about number stage 5 or 6, all the blades are wrapped around, but in plane. They're all broken and, and gutted, but wrapped around. Wow. But it hadn't gone back through the engine. Yeah. And I'm talking to the engine guy. I said, what's happened to you? He said, well, you know, one of them's let go and it's taken all the others out with it. I said, why didn't they get sucked back down? He said, oh, not enough mass flow. I said, what sort of mass flow would it need? He said, oh, 140, 150 knots. Right in the middle of 
dead man's window. Yeah. I'd be airborne 125 and I would have lost at the engine. In a 109 bomber at 140 knots, I'd be dead. Simple as that. I went and saw the warrant officer and said, um, that young LAC, don't charge him. I'm going to buy him a bottle of scotch or whatever else he wants to drink. He just saved my life. Yeah. And he did. And he sort of didn't quite get it. And I said, don't worry about it. Trust me. It was one of those things. He made an error which countered this potential situation. Don't charge him. Just give him a kick in the ass with everybody, but you know, let it go. I'm going to buy him a bottle. And I did. I bought him a bottle of scotch. And he sort of looked at me and said, um, thank you, um, sir, but why? Don't worry, you just saved my life. I did. Yeah. I look back on that now and think just this combination of circumstances because if I had dropped the brakes and rolled and that mass flow had dropped up, you know, the gear would be coming up, the flaps would be coming up, and 150 knots, I would have flick rolled straight in the ground and you wouldn't be talking to me now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Never flew that aeroplane again because by the time they'd fixed it, something else then occurred. <laughs> I, uh, I was down at Williamtown and uh, doing my, my thing, going around seeing the FCI court and I went into, uh, into the conversion unit down there and my old nemesis, Spike Jones, was now the commanding officer. Right. So I had an old chat with him. I said, the next FCI course, has it been decided yet? He said, yes, it has. I said, am I on it? He said, I can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell me? He said, I suggest you go home as soon as you can. So I got in the Sabre and I flew it up to Amberley and there was Jim waiting for me and I taxied in. He handed me his piece of paper and said, congratulations. You bastard, you got what you wanted, not what I wanted. And I looked at it and I'm posted to number 10 FCI course with effect like two weeks time. I said, what did you want? He said, I'd recommended you to the Empire Test Pilot course. Oh, oh shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I said, but, but I, I didn't know what to say at this point. Here, I got what I wanted, but now he's offering me this other thing, which I'm starting to realize I'd really like doing. He said, it's all right, it's too late. He said, you made your decision. I said, why didn't you tell me about this? He said, I've been trying to subtly for some time now. <laughs> Flying officer cruise and you weren't paying attention. <laughs> As it turned out, it was probably the best choice anyway, because several of my friends went on to do Empire Test Pilots courses, and they're great courses, no question, flying all sorts of interesting airplanes and learning some really interesting stuff. But then they come back to an Air Force in a country which had stopped making airplanes. Right. By then, we're seriously into Mirage. We didn't make the Mirage, or well, we made them, but you know, there was the production test flying, and they were already been taken care of. Most of the guys at what they called the Aircraft Research and Development Unit were doing drag trials on bomb racks and things like that. And I, 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 so I knew a few of them. And they've all said, oh, mate, it's a dead-end job here. You know, it's a great course, but what we're doing now is just boring. Right. Boring is bad shit. So I'm glad I didn't do it in a way. I would love to have done the course, and then I've done both courses, actually. So anyway, um, I very quickly packed up my gear and basically moved house and family again. And that happened. I wrote the date down here somewhere, I think. 8th of August. I'd been at the aircraft depot eight months in total, and I got a whole 62 hours on cameras plus all the time I didn't save it. So it was a fairly action-filled eight months. Yeah, yeah. My replacement uh, had to be quickly found. There was a young guy from, uh, from Butterworth whom I knew, but indeed halfway through my FCI course, they asked me to go back up there for uh, a few days to do a Sabre test flight because he wasn't there, he wasn't ready yet. Okay. I hadn't spoken to him, so I had a chance to talk to him and. And I did a Sabre test flight just as a bit of an overlap, which was no biggie. But I never flew a camera again. Okay. And I don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I do not miss it at all. Yes, yeah, so it was interesting, but oh, you know, 
that uh, that asymmetric thing it would just it'd be criminal these days there's no way you could you could level an airplane like that fly okay there's a few of them flying in museums and so forth good luck to the drivers i hope they've got it all together yeah so that ended sorry uh, so, so was the the one where the heated window blew out was that mm. the last uh yep that was the last time last time that yep. you sat in a camera the last time i sat in the camera yeah yeah and also almost like it was saying goodbye get out of here yeah. <laughs> yeah. it had plans to kill me before my posting but i just managed they're there for one thermostat malfunction got away with it yeah wow. um yeah it sort of it didn't leave me with any nostalgia shall we say when i left there i thought thank god for that yeah, yeah. the thing that i missed the most about it was flying these absolutely pristine sabers brand spanking new i mean this one that had even no mac roll and could do yeah. 625 it was just smooth and then we started giving them away to the indonesians and the malayans Right. And without wanting to be politically incorrect, I really didn't appreciate that decision at all. They were giving my beautiful aeroplanes away. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another story, except I would like to finish you off by talking a little bit about Jim, Jim Rollins, yeah. and my relationship with him. It goes way beyond uh, the Canberra flying, because at that point, of course, you know, I'd left and I thought, well, that's the end of it. You, know, you, you, you work for a CO and then you hardly ever see them again. And for a long time, I didn't, because he was a group captain at the time. He, he shortly after was promoted to Air, Air Commodore, and then it, within a very short period, he's the chief of the Air Force. Okay, So okay. I ran across him a couple of times officially when he came to inspect the base, and he'd always say, G'day, Noel, how's it going? Well, it's still very friendly, very informal, yeah. despite his, his, his rank. And oh, we're sort of leaping ahead now five or seven years to about the time, almost about leaving the Air Force. He has retired from the Royal Australian Air Force and has been appointed um, the vice regal position as governor of New South Wales. Okay. He's now sir, I mean real sir, knighted the whole bit. He's now the governor of New South Wales and he occupied that beautiful house on, on the harbour and all the rest of it there. And I hadn't seen him at all at this stage. And I was now seriously involved in organising air shows and so forth. We used to do the Schofields Air Show series, which grew into the Avalon ones that they are today. Yeah. And my good friend Ian Honnery was the, the ramrod, and I was his air show director and choreographer and all the rest of it. And Ian, of course, being a good politician, always had someone special to come along as the guest of honour at his air shows. We had Douglas Barter one year. Right? Oh, right. Yep. Anyway, this particular year, he was going to invite Jim Rollins to be the, the guest of honour yep. of, of the whole thing and to make a little speech and the whole bit, being a, a former aviator of renown. And so we were invited to go to Government House, Ian and I, to discuss the Governor's itinerary for the day. So we're down in the basement of this beautiful palace he lived in, talking with this snotty-nosed little army bloody lieutenant, one of his aide-de-camps. Yeah. And I'm saying things like, well, we should allow a bit of time for him to go and you know, talk to the pilots and look at their, oh, no, 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 Sir James is too busy to do all that sort of stuff, you know, you know we'll have him do this and do that, and then we'll leave and, you know, shake hands with Mrs. Kafoops and say, no, you really should spend a bit of time just with aeroplanes. I think he'd like that. No, no. And as we're having this little argument, the door bursts open and in walks Jim. He's got the collar undone. He's got the, 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 uh, the, the braces dangling around his knees. He's come down to tell his ADC something or other and looks and says, G'day, Noel. How are you doing? Walks across, shakes my hand, slaps me on the shoulder. And he said, what are you doing here? So we're just setting up this air show thing. He said, oh, for God's sake, give me some time to look at some aeroplanes, will you? And he walked out. And this little <laughs> snotty old army guy looked at me and said, and so what would you like the governor to do again? <laughs> like, yeah. That was really cool. Anyway, so time moves on a little further. 
And of course, I met him then at the, at the thing itself. We had a good old chat about the good old days, and he was very friendly. And uh, then I hear, now I'm out of the Air Force, I'm a civilian. I've been running my flying school now for, I don't know, three, four years. And he's still the, the state governor. Yeah. And the aircraft depot is being disbanded. One of the rearranging of the deck chairs type uh, things with the Air Force. The air, aircraft depot, as it was, is no longer required. Servicing will be done a different way with the newer jets. Da, 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 da. So they're having the big disbandment parade and cocktail or dinner afterwards, okay? And of course, all the ex-commanding officers are invited yep. to come along, including Jim. And of course, since he's now vice-regal, he is the invitee par excellence. Yes. You know, he gets the royal treatment. He's going to be the guest speaker the, the whole nine yards. Yep, yep. Right? I get a phone call from his ADC saying, Sir James would like you to come as his guest. Okay. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yep, and through comes the official piece of paper that Sir James Rowland is, in, is, is the, the, the official guest of honour and so forth at the tournament, and, and you are to be his guest, yourself and your wife. So by now I have a C. McKetty 260, which is a slick little aeroplane. So my wife and I hop in this 260 and fly to Amberley Air Base and are sitting on the right-hand side of this vice-regal person at this wonderful thing. And that blew me away. Yeah. Because I, some stage in all of this, I said to him, I said, I, I'm, I'm blown away by this, sir. I still called him sir, even though I was civilian, but he was a real sir. Yeah. And I totally, really respected him. I said, you know, in my, in my experience in the Air Force, commanding officers only remember their, 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 the people who work for them for one of two reasons. They're either exceptionally good or they're total cock-ups. He just looked at me and said, don't sell yourself short, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that was cool. That really was yeah, cool. Yeah. Anyway, a little while later, he um, retired as um, as the governor. He was replaced, whatever they, they do, and he became a chancellor of university. He's now getting on a bit. He's late sixties, like he's about my age now. God, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> and we're having a um, an air show at Richmond Air Base, where Sabre is flying, and where I was told, I think I mentioned this to uh, the the current. Chief of the Air Force, I said to him, why are you importing Sabre pilots all the way from Darwin to fly the Sabre when I'm just down the road? And he looked at me and said, bugger off, not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jim Rollins came along to the air show, virtually just as I ran across him. And just prior to this, he had mailed me out of the blue a book on how to fly aerobatics, written by Wing Commander Dog's Body, okay, with a little note from Jim saying, no, I know you're into aerobatic training, so I thought you might like to have a read of this. And I read it, and that was total crap, it really was. And I thought, oh, God, how do I respond to this? This is obviously a good friend of his. Yeah. How do I tell him it's crap? Anyway, I ran across him at this air show. First thing he said, oh, did you get that book? I said, um, yes, I did, sir. What did you think of it? Um, um, it's a total crap, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes, it was. I, I could tear it to shreds. And he said, I thought you could. You should write a book. It's one of the last things he said to me. Guess what I've done or about to do? Yeah. Write the book. Write the book, yeah. He first put this idea in my head that I should write the book. I've written, as you know, a number of books working up to it. Yeah. That's still to come. And then the final act, and I know we're talking about something completely aside from this, but he's a man that I totally respected. Uh, going some years, he was 73. So we're now talking another three or four years down the line. I'd heard that he died of cancer. And I thought, oh, yeah, bugger, but... This stage, I've not seen him for a long time and knew nothing much about it. But because of his ex vice regal status, he was going to be given the complete state funeral. Right. Okay. I didn't know when or where, 
But at this stage, I'm seriously into competition sailboat racing around Sydney Harbour every Wednesday afternoon. Okay, the, yeah. the Red Baron sailing team you know, dominated the Sydney Harbour every Wednesday afternoon for a couple of years. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know why, I was driving to Rushcutters Bay where the boat was quite early, like about, you know, the race didn't start till two in the afternoon, but I'm driving there at about 11 o'clock. I think it was just a beautiful day and I wanted to get out of the house. And as I'm driving just past St. James's uh, Church in, uh, in Sydney, I look over and I can see bandsmen and, and Air Force guys in full regalia and, and, and trumpets and things. And I thought, ah, this must be Jim's funeral. So I, there was a parking spot, amazingly, right there. Yep. Um, parking spots in Sydney are like virgins, they're bloody hard to find. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so I parked my car and wandered. And I'm dressed in this really daggy sail. I've got these grotty old jeans, I've got this old sailing jacket with holes in it. I'm looking absolutely disgusting. I don't even think I'd shaved. You know. yeah. It was my day off and I'm going to get grotty. And sure enough, they're, they're erecting barricades and so forth, and there's PA systems and all. So I, I, I called one of these, these bandsmen. I said, is this for Sir James's funeral? He said, yeah, yeah. So I sort of hung around there for about half an hour and then it was all starting to happen, okay? And all the dignitaries started arriving and the oh, ex-prime ministers and ex-state um, premiers and things and a lot of senior officers, some of which I knew. Yeah. Uh, well, but didn't recognise me for the way I'm dressed because I'm just standing behind the barricades in the crowd. And I thought, well, I'll hang around for a bit and just you know, pay my last respects. Yeah. And it was almost about to start. All the dignitaries are in. Yes, and there was a guy named Jeff Michaels who was a, a commanding officer commanding of the Richmond base when I was the CR-38 squadron there. And he spied me. He was a bit of a rammer, I could tell. He was marshalling people. He spied me and he came here and said, what are you doing here, Noel? So I've just come to pay my last respects to Sir James. He said, I mean, what are you doing on that side of the barricade? <laughs> Look at the way I'm dressed. This is a state funeral. He said, come with me. Dragged me into the church and said, stand up the back with all the press. They're dressed even worse than you are. <laughs> so I stood up the back of Sir James's funeral on a state funeral, dressed about as daggy as you can imagine, trying to make myself inconspicuous for about an hour. It was a moving ceremony. It really was. And then they picked up the, the coffin and they slow marched it down the aisle and all the press stepped back and I'm standing right there. And Gough Whitlam and all of these people all walked straight past me, and you could see them eyeing me out of the corner of their eye, going, Who is this tramp? You know? <laughs> yeah. And then the coffin came past, and I swear I heard Jim say, Good one, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and out he went, yeah. And it stuck in my memory ever since. So I went to a state funeral dressed like a dag to say farewell to a guy who's probably the most impressive guy I've ever met and certainly had a huge influence on my appreciation of how aeroplanes fly. So I, I thought I'd just like to throw that in as a the end of this particular part of the tale because Jim is, yeah, well, like a father to me. He really yeah, was. He's yeah. good. Anyway, Absolutely. Pretend it there. Well, thank you very much, Noel. That's awesome. Cheers. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hopewood.